From the Southern Oral History Program at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, this is Press Record, a podcast about the joys and challenges of learning history by talking to those who lived it. I'm Rachel Seidman. And I'm Evan Falkenberry. In the final analysis, a riot is the language of the unheard. What is it that America has failed to hear? failed to hear that the plight of the Negro poor has worsened over the last few years. It's failed to hear that the promises of freedom and justice have not been met. It has failed to hear that large segments of white society are more concerned about tranquility and the status quo than about justice, equality, and humanity. You probably recognize that voice. That was Martin Luther King Jr. speaking at Stanford University in April 1967 about the riots that have been going on recently in the United States. As we were thinking about putting together our pilot episode of Press Record, we were doing so in the context of increasing protests across the United States today about racial injustice, whether it was about police brutality in Baltimore Ferguson and other places around the country, or about racism on college campuses like the University of Missouri, where protests brought about the resignation of the chancellor and the president. Martin Luther King's words came back to us about the problem of America not being able to hear what it was that African Americans had been talking about. So we started thinking about oral history and the power of silence. Can oral history help us to listen better, to learn not just to hear what is being said, but what isn't being said? This episode is entitled, Silence Speaks Volumes. In our first segment, you'll hear Rachel speak with Jacqueline Dowd Hall, Professor Emerita of History here at UNC Chapel Hill, about an interesting interview she conducted back in 1974. In the second segment, Evan will talk about a memorable moment in an interview he did recently with a conservative activist and give you some tips for handling silences in your own interviews. In our final segment, you'll hear from three different activists from our collection of over 6,000 interviews where they talk about different forms of silence they encountered in their own lives. You can find more info and links to all interviews on our website, SOHP.org. to listen, where we dive deeper into an interview and the complexities it offers up when we listen more closely. Evan, I was remembering something that Jacqueline Dowd Hall wrote in an article called Open Secrets, Memory, Imagination, and the Refashioning of Southern Identity. She wrote that we have to, quote, honor silence as a speech act as eloquent as any other. You know, of course, that Jacqueline is the founder of the Southern Oral History Program And she's writing a book about Catherine Dupree Lumpkin and her sisters. These are three women who were born into a very old uh, Southern family that had been a slave-owning family for generations. And one of the sisters, Elizabeth, is an apologist for the Confederacy and spoke many times uh, about the lost cause and, you know, would be invited to Confederate memorial services and things like that. The other two, Catherine and Grace, actually both became radical voices 
Southern women, white Southern women writers who uh, were grappling with their own views on race as being very, very different from those that they were brought up with. And they both expressed these in, in very different ways. And actually, Grace goes on to reject all of that. She comes full circle and ends up back as a very, very conservative woman in her older years. And in fact, something that Jacqueline didn't find out until years later, she ratted out Catherine and her partner, Dorothy Douglas, to the House Un-American Activities Committee in the 1950s. I, so I sat down recently with Jacqueline in her home to talk about the first time she interviewed Catherine Lumpkin way back in 1974. We're going to listen to a little bit from that interview, and it's clear that Catherine was a tough nut. Yes. <laughs> um, she uh, used her ladyhood to very good advantage. <laughs> yes, she does. You, in the part we're going to listen uh, to, you were curious about her relationship to her older sister, Grace. And um, what, what was it you wanted to know at the time? Do you remember what you were trying to figure out about that relationship? From the very beginning, I was just fascinated by, I have continued to be fascinated by, this Family. I'm, I'm, I'm interested in sisterhood and sisterly relationships anyway. You have several sisters. And I, I have several sisters and have very intense and complicated relationships with them. Okay, so let's play the clip and then we can talk. Catherine basically refuses to answer the question that you ask her. You didn't see large differences between your activities and political commitments and hers just uh, well insofar as I was aware of them of hers uh -huh. I uh, I found her novel to make my bread was very very well done and very interesting I think you're searching for something that isn't there. And uh, I find that uh, that is you're searching for inter-influences. It just, uh, just happenstance that uh, I had certain areas of interest and she had certain areas of interest. But what you have to recognize is her talents were very different from mine. Hers were in the uh, novel and writing uh, and fiction field, and mine were always in the scholarly and uh, uh, biographical field. Uh, you see, the, 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 the very fact that I pursued uh, my graduate studies and so on, uh, my doctorate, uh, and my whole teaching field, this, uh, this was uh, quite independent. And uh, may even, I don't know, have come earlier. I presume it must have. If mine date back, you see, to, to uh, my college days, and I certainly don't remember 
anything of that kind in, in our area, but I don't know. But it's just, it's just interesting for two, out of a Southern family, for two women to come that had the kind of uh, careers that the two of you have had. And yet they're very different careers, yeah, my yeah. Very different. How do you account for differences then? Um, this... Do you see going all the way back to your childhood? Yeah. Very different I, uh, I found... In my early, and I'm, I'm going off on a, I'm taking a diversionary uh, route for a moment. I go back to Angelina Grimkianos to Sarah. So she starts talking about Angelina and Sarah Grimke. Um, so she really won't answer your question directly. We always tell our interviewees that this is up to them. They can, you know, they don't have to answer any question that they don't want to. We can turn off the recorder if something comes up that they don't want to talk about. Um, we always, you know, put it in their control. But it can be incredibly frustrating if you really have a, an important question and you, you can't get them to answer it. How did you respond at the time? Well, um... So I thought that was a, such an interesting word she used, diversionary. <laughs> I had forgotten that word. She was clearly, I'm going to divert you. This is a tactic. <laughs> and I, I recognized that. Um, how I responded at the time, well, she ends, so she, she, she goes off on this long and very interesting discussion of the Grimke sisters and the differences between them. These and, were abolitionists, southern abolitionists. Yes, uh, these were uh, pioneering feminist abolitionists from South Carolina. And um, I think that she saw herself and I see her as very much in the tradition of these sisters. Mm -hmm. um, as Southern anti-racist feminist, a, a tradition, of not a large one, but an important one. I believe that when she finishes talking about them, I try again to come back to this topic. I also tell students to uh, assure interviewees that they don't have to talk about things they don't want to talk about, but I also tell them that if they ask a question that doesn't get that the person doesn't answer to try to come back to that question from a different angle and see because sometimes it's the way you're asking the question or the point within the conversation where it comes up so I think this is an example of a case where an interviewer kept trying to come back from different directions and almost went too far, mm -hmm. but didn't quite go too far. We ended up friends and long after that. But in any case, I believe that I come back to it again, and at that point, she says to me, my young friend, don't try too hard in your work to account for things by these interpersonal relationships in the family, important as they are, 
look not only for the likenesses and the inter-influences, but look for the differences. So I took that as definitive (laughs) and didn't try to ask about this anymore. As Jacqueline says, she and Catherine Lumpkin ended up being very fond of each other and having a long relationship. After Catherine died, Jacqueline would finally attempt to wrestle with writing the book she'd been thinking about for years. In this part of our conversation, we talked about the challenges that come after the interviews are over. As an historian, how do you do justice to a person's life and treat her story, including its silences, with respect? The other thing I wanted to ask you about was in that article you said, um, you could say that I loved her for the secrets she did not want to tell. And that's such a, well, sort of startling and refreshing statement for a historian to say because we never talk about our emotional feelings for our subjects. So um, tell me about that. Like, what role did, did her secrets play in your feelings for her, but also why you decided to, to break that silence that so many historians maintain? The silence about myself and Yourself my feelings. Yourself and your feelings for the uh-huh. person you're writing about. I was at a place in my own work and life where I, I was really interested in trying to find different ways of writing history that were more embodied mm-hmm. and less cordoned off from the self, of the author's self. I was interested in doing that at that time. And I was interested in, in starting, I was thinking about writing about these women which I actually wanted to do ever since I interviewed them in 1974, I believe it was. Mm -hmm. But I hadn't done so, as I say in that article, because I just knew that I couldn't do, you know, Catherine, uh, Grace had died uh, earlier than Catherine, but I knew that Catherine would there was just no way I could write about her in a way that she would not feel that I was intruding upon her life. She didn't want to be written about. But, uh, and and as I say, we continued to be in touch. I interviewed her at other times, and she ended up moving here to Chapel Hill Mm -hmm. and living in Carol Wood's retirement center for the remainder of her life. And toward the end, I had several conversations with her in which I said, Catherine, I, I really, I, I'm going to, to write about you. I want to write not just about you as part of a large group, you as, a, you as one of the activists of the 20s, but about you in particular. And she... She didn't say, I don't want you to do that. And she didn't say, okay, I'm glad you're going to do that. Mm -hmm. She just didn't exactly give me her blessing, but she didn't withhold her blessing. So by the time I gave this talk and wrote this article, she had been, 
she had died several years before that. And so I was beginning to just try to grapple with how is the balance between my right and responsibility as a writer, as an interviewer and as a writer, to interpret and to put forward the way I see this history and this, this person's life, and balancing that against my respect for her and friendship with her and my, my respect for, not just in her case, but generally, my respect for reticence. On the one hand, want to write honestly, include about these things that she didn't want to talk about, and on the other hand, I want to do it in a way that's respectful. Mm-hmm. It's that. an interesting tension, or I don't know if it's a tension, but to balance your work as an oral historian, particularly mm-hmm. with this sort of fundamental respect or value placed on, on reticence. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting um, mm-hmm. combination in your own self. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so why am I always trying to get people to tell their secrets <laughs> if I respect reticence so much? <laughs> mm, that's a good question. All I can say is that I think this carries over into my personal life and as well as my work as an interviewer and my work as a writer is that I I do value both of these things. I mean, they sound like they're poles apart, Mm -hmm. but I value intimacy. I value people being willing to really share their stories with each other. You can know people for a long time and not know very much about them. So I'm interested in sharing my own story and hearing other people's story. But I don't like, I'm also a pretty private person. I feel like there's a way of honoring and being, both of those things, not intruding on people's privacy, but being interested in their story. And I think those are two different, I think you can do both of those things. So after hearing that conversation between you and Jacqueline, do you have any thoughts about what she said and what it was like talking to her about silence in this interview with Catherine Dupre Lumpkin? Well, so you only heard a little bit of the conversation. The conversation actually went on for almost an hour, and there were wonderful moments where um, we were discussing two what Jacqueline called open secrets in Catherine's life. One was about her lesbianism, and one was about communism. And Jacqueline and I had this great uh, conversation that you can hear online at our website, sohp.org, where Jacqueline really tried to think about how do you deal with uh, someone's sexuality when she doesn't want to talk about it. Catherine said it was irrelevant to what they were discussing, um, and in Jacqueline's mind, She wasn't sure at all that it was irrelevant, but she had to be really careful in how she talked about it. So that was one of my 
favorite parts of the interview, and I hope some of you will go on and listen to it online. Tip Jar, where we offer you a tip on interviewing. Sometimes, of course, silence is not abstract or metaphorical at all, right, Evan? It's just silence. If you're doing your own interview, how should you handle it if there's a long silence? I know you had an interesting experience recently uh, when you asked one of your interviewees a, a pretty big question. Tell us about what happened. I did. I was interviewing a woman named Judith Reisman. Judith Reisman is, is a longtime conservative activist and writer and academic. She now teaches law at Liberty University. I was working on a project for the SOHP on the law and women's movement. And we had a number of interviews, well over a hundred of different progressive and leftist leaders, but I wanted to talk to conservatives. And I also wanted to talk to them about what feminism meant to them. And so I met Judith Reisman and we had a nice, almost two hour long conversation. Towards the end of it, I had an interesting question to ask her. What does feminism mean to you? If anything, <laughs> not suggesting that it must, but. Well, it means something. What does it mean to me? Um, it's irrelevant. It's just irrelevant. Um, Why so? Women are reacting to their loss. Uh, they don't know often that they're reacting to their loss, but they are. And just to clarify, a loss of, of what? Of their womanhood, of their honor, of their integrity that they did have. There were problems um, pre-feminism there were, you know, there were problems in the workplace or uh, there were problems in fair employment, other things that are not right. But now they've, they've lost who they are as women. They're treated like uh, slabs of meat, this hookup business, all part of the idea of feminism. And um, the, uh, the rate of divorce, the rate of abortion, of venereal disease, all these things, they, they are examples of women who believe, um, who have come to believe frauds and, and who have given up their their womanhood. That's such a fascinating exchange there, and um, we wouldn't have gotten it if you had jumped in when she had that long, uncomfortable pause. How do you? How did you handle that moment, and what tips would you give a, a less experienced interviewer? Sure. Well, I I jumped in a little bit after I asked it. 
Um, but then try to maintain some silence before that and then after it. It's hard to do, especially when you ask a question and the person you've asked it to is sitting there, isn't responding yet. As, as the interviewer, you're wondering, oh no, did I, was I confusing? What was her body language like at that moment? Well, she was, we were, we were sitting in between a table, each of us on one side, and she kind of put her hand on, on her face, if I remember it right, and she was doing that throughout the interview, and, and she was smiling. I think she was trying to figure out how to respond to that. So I, I asked the question, and then I let some seconds go by, and then I, I came in again and asked if feminism means anything to you at all, not suggesting that it must, because I was unsure what she was thinking about then. And then I tried to be quiet again as she took some time, laughed again, and then had her long, long answer. So I think I did a few things right there, but also could have improved a few things too. And I think I have, since I've been interviewing more, I've gained more experience. So we hear silence from interviewees, but I think it's also important for the person asking a question in an oral history interview to try to remain silent as long as you can when you ask questions. From the Archive is our segment where we feature voices from the Southern Oral History Program's collection of over 6,000 interviews. We chose these because in each one, the narrator exposes the relationship between silence and power. I'm just trying to get what's fair. Ann Hurst is a nurse and an organizer in the effort to unionize nurses in Kentucky. Here, she talks about the price people pay for not speaking up against injustice. What's it? What is the Charlie Brown? You know, the, just the fair thing, just the reasonable thing, not anything unusual. And if somebody doesn't speak up, nobody will speak up. And it's that way with it. It's that way with it. a lot of things. You have to, if you don't voice it, if it isn't known, how's it going to be fixed? Next, we have Maddie Jones. Jones is also from Kentucky, where she's an activist on issues about racial and economic injustices. And in this 2006 interview, she explains why her organization won't accept money with strings attached. And I say that we don't take monies from elected officials. We don't take money from federal grants. We're in nobody's pocket. But when you begin to do that, you have to kind of silence yourself. And we will not be silenced. Suzanne Farr is a women's rights and LGBT activist. She's been in the progressive fight since the 1960s. And she has a vivid memory about the role silence played in the environmental concerns about Agent Orange and other pesticides. But we had so much evidence of children being born with terrible deformities and that kind of thing. But I would say in the last 10 years, so much of what people feel like is uh, kind of new discoveries were the counterculture discoveries of the time. And I, I mean, there were all kinds of people who were in, in that movement who talked about where we would be in with fossil fuels at this point. You know, the, the talked, you know, deeply about organic gardening and about pesticides and the loss of uh, our original 
seed and grains and uh, that it would become they would become patented by corporations you know this vision of into the future of what it was going to be and asking people to position themselves then against it um, but you had the great roar of capitalism instead that silenced that so those are three very different people that we heard from. Yeah, and they're just three from many we could have chosen from our collection that talk about silence, silencing, feeling silenced. It's actually a theme that comes up among a lot of the people we've talked to over the years. Each person that we played for you now is really different from one another. Anne Hurst was one who didn't even see herself as an activist, and yet the way that she's describing her union organizing and her work as a nurse in Kentucky. It's very clear, listening to her whole life story as she tells it, that she is, and she's talking against being quiet and ignoring injustice. Right, really her activism comes at least in part from identifying moments of silence and speaking up into those moments. I think one of the interesting themes in the other two is the connection between money and silence or the use of money to silence some people and, and resisting that. The um, clip from Suzanne Farr talks about how lots of people in the 60s and 70s were trying to point out the dangers of environmental degradation from chemicals, things that today we're talking about again, but she says the um, great roar of capitalism silenced those conversations back then. And then on the other hand, Maddie Jones, who does see herself as a community activist, she's talking about how her organization won't accept money because of the strings that would be attached that would silence her, it would silence her organization, they wouldn't have the freedom to speak out and to do the kind of things that they would feel free to do if they didn't have these necessary requirements in order to get the money. Yeah, the connection between money and voice or money and silence reminds me of the whole debate we've been having recently about Citizens United and the way that corporations now have bought a much bigger voice in our democracy than in the past, and a lot of people are really worried about what that means in terms of the equality of people's voices in our democracy. So from these three interviews from our massive collection, we can see parallels to today's world, to today's politics, and the way that these stories about silence and trying to overcome silence is important for the historical record, but also speaks to issues that we face today. Those were just three short clips from our more than 6,000 interviews in our collection. There's lots others where people talk about this issue of silence. We hope you'll go on to our website, sohp.org, and find more that you're interested in listening to. Thanks for listening to our first podcast from the Southern Oral History Program. To find more information, please visit our website, sohp.org. And if you have any questions or concerns or ideas about future episodes, please email us at pressrecordsohp at gmail.com. And don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes or any other platform you listen to for podcasts. And please come back in February when we have our next episode. We'll be talking about back ways segregation in the rural South. It should be out the first Friday in February. 
So Evan, as we always say at the end of our interviews, is there anything else we should have asked? <laughs>